0: Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 5 of The Essential X-Lapsed, where, uh, uh, the allergies are getting me again. We're having some weird weather here in, uh, lovely Arizona. It's, uh, very, very hot one day, and then it's, uh... Well, it's still hot, but not quite as hot the next day. We are fluctuating, like, 20, 25 degrees a day here. It's very, very strange. I attribute it all to the fact that, uh, For the first summer ever, we have a pool, and uh, so it can't stay all that hot, right? It's got to get cold to make sure that uh, we don't get to use it nearly as much as we might want to. And uh, the thing you got to know about me is uh, my skin is so white that it's just about see-through. So um, the pool is a uh, late-in-the-day event for me. It has to be when the sun isn't, you know, right on top of me so I don't uh, just... Burn to ashes and uh, blow away in the breeze. So, In the evening, it's a little cooler, and uh, it's been quite a pain. Uh, The allergies are just a cherry on that sundae. But enough about all that. We got a uh, comic to get to here, and uh, there's another one where Stan the Man is at his Dickensian best here. It's almost as though he's getting paid by the word. A lot lot of words in this issue. This is X-Men number five. Had a May 1964 cover date. The story's called Trapped. One X Man. Written and edited by Stan Lee with pencils by Jack Kirby. Inks Paul Reinman, letters S Rosen. Colors? Wouldn't you like to know? I know I would. If you do know, please let me know and then I can uh, give them proper credit. Cover price 12 cents American. Alrighty, so we open pretty much right where we left off last issue. Uh, The X Men are bringing the injured and now depowered Professor X back home to the mansion. Now, they seem to vacillate between Xavier being just depowered and in almost a vegetative state uh, throughout this issue. It's very, very weird. Anyway, upon arrival, Bobby realizes that he's got the key to the school, but he would have to defrost in order to get it, which just seems like really poor planning to me. Thankfully, they have the master key in the uh, form of a narrow optic blast through a keyhole, which not only unlocks the thing, but blows the door wide open. Inside, Gene gently and carefully lifts Xavier out of his chair and lowers him into his bed, uh, probably a dream that he's had many, many, many nights. Again, now, you wouldn't know if he's awake, asleep, comatose, or even if we're going as far as to being in a Weekend at Bernie sort of situation here. It's You just don't know. Anyway, the strangest teenagers ever lament the fact that, from this point on, they're on their own until Beast hears a car pulling up outside, which kind of shatters the, uh, the somber uh, mood. Now you might be asking, who could it be? Well, it's Jean Grey's parents, who, if the timeline established last issue is accurate, likely haven't seen their daughter in over a year. It's a good thing they're able to stop by for about five minutes. Now the kids scramble to get out of their gear and into their even less comfortable-looking civilian attire. And here is where we get a bit of a refresher on just who these kids are. Uh, We got Iceman, he defrosts, rendering himself back into, quote, plain Bobby Drake. Now, it looks like he's a big fan of the Marvels, uh, judging by the pennant in his bedroom. Reminded me that pennants were even a thing. You know, growing up, I had a ton of New York Mets pennants in my bedroom. I wonder if they are still something that uh, people buy and uh, hang up on their walls. I guess you'll have to tell me. the angel uh, straps his wings down to become the devil-may-care young blue blood, Warren Worthington III. Beast puts his glasses on and reflects on how he's not actually a fan of the Beast identity, and he'd much rather just be some genius, you know. Scott, well, he puts on his ruby quartz shades and does that thing where he whinges a whole lot about the curse that is his powers. Which, I mean, he will probably be doing at least once per issue for, uh, well... A very long time Now Jean heads to the front door While waxing aloud about how her family Had been led to believe that Xavier's Is just some progressive private school And how they don't know about her Uncanny abilities or the true nature Of this place And she lets her folks in Now moments later the Greys are introduced to the rest Of the crew who they feel like they already Know due to Jean's correspondence I mean This is the early 1960s, right? Yeah, you would think parents in the early 60s would feel, I don't know, maybe a little bit weird about their daughter being the lone girl shacked up with four teenage boys. But, uh, whatever, I guess. And I mean, that's not even accounting for the, uh, the perverted, uh, professor. But what are you gonna do? Now, Warren apologizes for the professor's absence, claiming that he's been unavoidably detained. Jean's mother takes a weird sidebar to chat up Scott about his strange red shades, and she even goes to pull them off his face to get a better look. Which, I mean, Cyclops does not take that all that well. Uh, he shouts at her not to touch him before collecting himself a bit uh, in order to explain that he's just got an eye infection, and uh, he's sure she understands. The Greys then go on a tour of the facility, including stepping into the danger room. Now, Hank explains that their new gym equipment hasn't yet been delivered to explain away why uh, there's this giant, empty room in the middle of a mansion. The tour then heads out of the danger room, but the door shuts before Scott can exit the room. This triggers the auto-start program, and uh, so whether we want it or not, we're going to be getting a training scene right now. Now, here's the thing. The danger room is set to run the Beast scenario, but it's Cyclops who's here. And so we get a page of Cyclops bouncing around the danger room like beast until the time runs out. Now, he's mostly successful, but has to resort to blasting a bunch of stuff that wasn't meant to be blasted. Eh, oh well, what are you gonna do? At this point, it's time for the Greys to leave. Uh, you know, I mean, they're happy to see their daughter doing so well, and uh, they figure maybe they'll see her in another year or two. They are disappointed that they didn't get any face time with Xavier. Now, Jean's mom, she finds him to be quite the charming man. Jean's dad's like, yeah, he's charming, but he's also a lot more than that. He, it's, It makes you wonder if they'd even mind if they knew that he was like pervin' around their little girl. Uh, they, might, they might welcome that, I don't know. Now, as they leave, they drive by a peculiar-looking fellow who we recognize as being mastermind from Magneto's brotherhood. Now, he's been tasked with finding the X-Men secret headquarters, and oddly enough, out of all the neighborhoods on this entire planet, he's somehow walking around Salem Center. And here's an even stranger part than that. He doesn't even know that the X-Men are nearby. He's just there. Very odd. Magneto then calls him on his Apple Watch to call him back to base. Quicksilver soon arrives in one of Magneto's silent magnetic jets. Then after picking up Wingard, they're off to Asteroid M. Upon arrival and docking, Mastermind is tackled by the Toad, who excitedly wants to know if he'd destroyed the X-Men. Quicksilver starts running quickly and balls the Toad over. Mastermind then hits him with the illusion that he's been wrapped up in heavy cloth. Oh boy, heavy cloth, that's pretty hardcore, isn't it? Magneto enters and demands order. Toad then goes on full, goes into like full-on lackey mode. He tells Magneto that he's the only member of this crew who's really and truly loyal to him. We learn here that Magneto and the Brotherhood have spent the past several weeks trying to track down the X-Men. So, it took the X-Men several weeks to get back from Santa Marco? I really thought we were picking up where we left off. I mean, they were just getting home with, uh, with the Deep depowered professor. I mean, maybe this is just another indictment on why you, uh, you probably should never edit your own work, folks. You, know, you get problems like this. Now, in any event, Magneto claims to have a new plan to draw the X-Men out, and it's going to involve his most loyal subject, the Toad. We jump back to the mansion, where the kids are getting ready to watch a great track meet on TV. Wow, pretty big day, huh? Bobby asks Scott to join them in the den or wherever the television is, but Psyche ain't feeling it. So much so that he shoots an optic blast at Bobby. It winds up hitting his bedroom door, and rather than blasting through it, it just causes it to slam shut. So, I mean, are the optic blasts a blessing or a curse at this stage? Who knows? Anyway, down to the TV room. Gene is wrapping a blanket around the legs of a seemingly catatonic Xavier. I think he's just enjoying the attention Gene's giving him. Um, Hopefully not too much. Um, Anyway. The track meet begins, and our heroes immediately take notice of one athlete in particular who stands out above the rest. I mean, this track star here is just kicking butt here. He's winning every event, breaking world records. I mean, it's pretty wild here. He's so impressive that the crowd... Revolts? I mean, you'd think they might be cheering, but no. They call this poor guy out as being a phony. Now, the X-Men take this to mean that the guy has got to be a fellow mutant. And also take the crowd's reaction as an indictment on how humans fear and hate them And so our heroes recall their oath And head out to save their brother in mutantdom Now Xavier wakes up at this point Just long enough to remind them that he's not going to be able to help them with this one Since, you know, he's got no powers anymore Then, just like that, the X-Men arrive at the track meet Before the humans who were just brimming with fear and or hatred moments ago they're just about to dogpile the poor old to- uh, The brand new mutant track star here. Uh, Angel swoops in to take him away. Only this little fella is too heavy for him to carry for all that long. Beast jumps in to buy Warren some time to get the new mutant to the X-Mobile. Unfortunately for them, the X-Mobile is surrounded by humans, and so the X-Men are going to have to try and flee by foot rather than running them all over. Which, I mean, that would definitely give the humans something to fear and or hate. Now, the X-Men and the New Mutant run all the way to a subway station and hop aboard a train. Inside the train, the costumed kids are being stared at by all the folks there. Cyclops makes sure everyone there knows that they bought tickets, like, like they all did. Though we didn't actually see that, so I'm thinking he might just be lying here. Anyway, Beast takes a better look at their New Mutant friend and comments that there's something disturbingly familiar about him. Well, maybe it's the fact that he's wearing a big old rubber face mask. That might be enough to tip you off, right, Beast? Um, Beast rips the mask off the kid, revealing him as the Toad, of course. Duh. Cyclops, at this point, freaks the F out. He's scared that Beast literally ripped the face off their new friend. It's, um, uh, it's quite a scene. Now, Toad bounces on out of the train at the next stop, which we're gonna have to assume wasn't all that far off. Otherwise, that would have been, uh... You know, quite the uncomfortable few minutes of just standing there staring at one another. Uh, The X-Men follow him off the train here. Iceman freezes the ground below the Toad, causing him to fall backwards and crack his head wide open. So, uh, mission accomplished. No, no, I'm kidding. Um, Toad does fall, but he does so in more of like a Three Stooges sort of way, like spinning around like Curly on crack, you know? Then Magneto shows up. He yanks a bunch of train track up from the subway and wraps Angel up in it probably killing and or maiming hundreds of folks on the next train that comes by in the process. I mean, they are just homo sapiens here, who needs them anyway? Beast rushes in to save Warren, but Scarlet Witch uses her hex powers to cause some commuter's briefcase to open up, which spills out a bunch of stuff that trips Hank up. Iceman then finds himself surrounded by masterminds, and so he swipes at them with an icy baseball bat. Jean then deduces which Wingard is which, and TK lifts him away. Quicksilver locks Cyclops in a sort of double chicken wing maneuver here while Scott has Toad in a full Nelson. So we're going full, you know, full-on three-way dance here. Cyclops blasts at Pietro's feet, which surprises the speedster. Because he thought that Cyclops would need to use his hands to open his visor, and, uh... Well, he doesn't. Uh, This might actually be the first time we see that he doesn't need to do that. Uh, Then again, maybe it's not. Magneto tosses Angel over his shoulder and rushes back to his magnetic jet. Mastermind causes a human stampede when he drops an illusionary rhinoceros amid the crowded train station, and this buys the baddies just enough time to get away. Then, a short time later, we see Angel held captive at Asteroid M. Now, Magneto is grilling him for information under the threat of, uh, well, killing him. Wanda is absolutely aghast. She never thought they'd descend to murder, um, hey Wanda, weren't you there last issue when Magneto literally set a nuclear bomb to turn an entire country into glass? I, I mean, I think you were there. I mean, I had details, details. Magneto then begins to sort of kind of torture Warren to try and get the information out of him. He wants to know where the X-Men are hiding out. He nails him with a flashing light beam to ensure that he won't get a moment's peace until he talks. And then he starts blasting high-pitched sirens to really drive the point home. Our boy Warren, though, he ain't gonna talk. Back on Earth, the rest of the X-Men have captured Toad and are uh, wondering just what in the world to do with him. Then Toad starts to sleepwalk and then sleep talk. He mutters about how he must return to Magneto. And the X-Men just kind of follow him. Toad then rolls down his sock, revealing a communication device which he uses to summon a magnetic jet. And when it lands, the X-Men all load inside as well, and uh, bada-bing, bada-boom, they are shipped off to Asteroid M. Now, Toad exits the craft, much to Mastermind's surprise. Uh, This tells the X-Men that he wasn't just leading them into a trap, but uh, was actually just in a trance. Now, they're really edging on the idea that Magneto has some form of mental power here, and uh, this won't be the last time we see this. Now, B swoops in and dropkicks the Toad right into Mastermind. Wind God reacts by illusionally turning Hank's legs into dough. Cyclops reminds Hank that, hey, it ain't real, it's just an illusion. Uh, and, I mean, that doesn't much matter, though, because you know Beast knows that this is an illusion, but still can't move his legs, so I'm really glad that they addressed this. Mastermind then pulls a real gun out and starts shooting at the Beast. By now, thankfully, his legs are all better. Cyclops then blasts the pistol out of Mastermind's mitt. Then, Magneto puts on this weird tiara thing, Uh, he puts it on over his helmet in order to amplify his mental control over metal. So he's basically going to turn the entire asteroid into a weapon. And just like that, a small piece of sheet metal falls right onto Cyclops' head and wraps around it tight. Then, a weird metal apparatus wraps itself around Jean, and uh, I'm sure the professor is very, very displeased that he wasn't there for that. Bobby and Hank are then attacked by a bunch of flame jets. Iceman gums up the works with his slush. He then freezes the apparatus on Gene, while Hank pries the bit of sheet metal off of Scott's dome. Magneto spies all this via a monitor and decides to just lock the X-Men in an area before blasting them out of the airlock. Now, Wanda is not cool with this, and so she hexes the control panel. Magneto steps to her threateningly, but Quicksilver rushes between them and tells Magneto that he will not be harming his sister. Now, before this argument can escalate much more, uh, Cyclops blasts his way into the control room here. This is something Cyclops seems to do. When Magneto's hiding behind a wall, you can count on Cyclops to blast his way in. He then asks Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch to leave Magneto and join the X Men. Now, they refuse. They, you know, they don't want to be left out of the MCU movies that are going to come out in a half century, so, uh... Uh, Pietro and Scott then spend a couple of panels punching each other while Beast and Iceman attempt to free Warren from his glass cell. Gene then TKs a chemical tank into the glass, finally busting it open, but somehow not causing an explosion. So I guess it's all about that gentle touch, right? Anyway, it's, uh, it's time to fight. Mastermind unleashes an illusionary monster, which, uh, Angel flies right through. Magneto then fires a dart grenade down a hallway, which seems like a most dangerous thing to do, um, especially in the vacuum of space, right? Now, luckily, all 1,000 flying darts miss everybody and everything. It's uh, almost like we're in an episode of the A-Team. Maybe it's, a, it's the X-Team. Uh, then there's a rumbling because Asteroid M is cracking up. Magneto and the Brotherhood rush across the station to try to escape, and uh, as they're running, they see Cyclops and like, hey, let's throw him outside. <laughs> and that's exactly what they do. They just chuck Cyclops into the vacuum of space. Don't worry, though. Cyclops' lungs somehow didn't implode here. Also, somehow, Magneto isn't sucked out into the void with him. It's just they open a door, and they throw Cyclops out. So science science is weird. Iceman then makes an ice bridge. Uh, should he be able to manifest... Ice in space? I don't know. I do hold a couple of science degrees, don't get me wrong, just not that kind of science degree. Angel flies down the bridge and catches Cyclops, without his lungs imploding either. Then Asteroid M explodes. Nobody dies, though. Um, the X Men just barely escape into one of the magnetic jets. Once back on solid ground, the jet returns to the ruins of the asteroid, presumably to collect Magneto and the Brotherhood, assuming they aren't already dead, of course. I mean, the asteroid is literally in pieces right now. Um, Anyway, uh, we wrap up with the X-Men reporting into Xavier, and as they're telling their story, he puts his hand up and says, don't worry about it, I already know what happened, because he was faking the whole thing, he was never depowered. Oh, what a lovable scamp of a pervert, he was just playing with them here. He uh, informs his students that... uh, in, in pulling off this mission, without his help, they've passed their final exam, and now their training period is over. And that is where we leave it. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Uh, first of all, Xavier is a dick. Um, <laughs> I mean, this isn't the last time we're going to see him do anything like this. Uh, even in the first 66, he's just going to uh, continually screw with his students and his X-Men here. Um, I'm pretty sure a couple of the times were basically because uh, whoever was writing the story, either Stan, uh, Roy, or Arnold, or Gary, whoever whoever was writing the story, kind of wrote themselves into a corner and needed to uh, find a way out. So, But we'll get there when we get there. Here, it's uh, very strange that he would... Uh, that he would let his his students kind of tend to him hand and foot, you know? We have Gene tucking him in and uh, wrapping towels around him here. It's pretty bizarre that he would uh, go to such lengths here. But again, this is this is Xavier, and he is, uh, if nothing else, he is a strange, strange individual, and probably the last person you'd want as a uh, custodian of your, uh, of your young one. With that out of the way, I'd like to talk just a little bit about the pacing here. Um... I referred to X-Men number four as a seminal slog, which I stand by that. I feel like it's an important issue. It's just not a fun one to read, really. It's uh, very, very slow and just feels endless. Uh, It's something that we're actually talking about right now on the Facebook group. It's like, this thing feels like it took several days to read. (laughs) It's just a lot of stuff going on there. and uh, I mean, there's good and there's bad about that. You're getting plenty of story, but it's... uh, there are points where it almost feels like the story is being told in reverse. Like, as you turn the page, there's like five more pages. It's I, I could compare it to eating cauliflower. You know, I'm not a fan of cauliflower, but sometimes I'll try to eat it because it's, you know, good for you. At least that's what the wife tells me. And uh, I feel like every time you, t- you chew on cauliflower, it grows. You know, it doesn't break down in your mouth. It gets bigger in your mouth, and it just takes forever. And, I mean, you could be chewing on the same bit of cauliflower for, I don't know, a half hour. seems like, anyway. This issue of X-Men, issue four, that is, it was kind of like that. Here in issue five, still a little bit of a slog, of course. I mean, it's still the same creative team. It's still the same trappings, still the same era. But I feel like it was paced a lot better. I feel like there was a lot more going on. Um, we weren't forced so much into what we've come to learn over the past four issues As like the formula for an X-Men story here Where we start with, you know, several pages of training Then them all standing around Xavier while he tries to decide what they're gonna do Then he sends them to do it Then there's a fight, you know and that's sort of the standard format that we're getting Here I feel like Stan and Jack kind of jazzed it up a little bit here We did get a, a training scene because of course we did But it was a... Uh, it was different. You know, we had Scott locked in the Danger Room uh, going through Beast's paces. And I, I think that's an interesting and clever and uh, creative way to remind us that this is a school, remind us exactly what the Danger Room is, and not devote, you know, a, a quarter of the issue to it. You know, we, we, got, we got the point, right? We got the point of what the, uh, the Danger Room's all about. Now, using Gene's parents to introduce or remind readers exactly what the Danger Room is, and exactly who our characters are. I mean, we we do get the little scene of them changing into their civilian clothes, and we find out a little bit about them. Mm. I mean, surely we know all this stuff already, but, uh, you know, a kid in 1964 who may or may not have bought the issue before this, these are all new characters to them, and they're getting a little bit of information about them, and Hell, even if you are a kid in 1964 and you did buy the previous issue, that could have been two, three, four months ago. I mean, these were bi-monthly, and, I mean, trying to find things on a uh, on a newsstand, you just don't know. So it could have been several months removed from the previous issue, and it's nice to get that refresher. And, I mean, that is something that uh, we comics enthusiasts kind of poke fun at every now and again. Uh, we're covering the, uh, the Marvel Epic Elf Quest books on Quester Days here, and we finish Moratory Mondays, and... We got those, uh, we call them the shooter specials, you know, you got those page, page and a half of everybody says their name and what their powers are and or what their story is to, to remind us that, you know, back in the day, every issue of a comic could possibly be someone's first. It's certainly not like current year. And the example that we always kind of give when we're joking about this is like, You know, an issue of X-Men opens, and it's like, here's Wolverine with his razor-sharp adamantium claws. It's, you gotta mention all that stuff, because, uh, you know, there are new readers out there. Or there are lapsed readers out there, or uh, maybe just plain forgetful readers out there. So I thought this was a creative way to do that without actually just uh, hitting us with, you know, expository narration boxes here. We actually see them... Having to get out of their costumes and into their uh, into their civilian clothes here, we get to see them out of costume. We get introduced to them here. We get uh, we get the Greys coming in to give us a nice little tour of the school. We also get reminded that the school is a you know a secret thing, right? Uh, the actual purpose of the school is a secret, even to the parents of the students. They just think it's a uh, what do they call it? A progressive private school that. That their child uh, won a scholarship to Which, I mean, the early 60s must have been just a more trusting and innocent time Because if that were like now, you'd be like Our, our kid is being sucked into a cult <laughs> And you probably would not want this Especially after visiting the place and realizing that uh, Your daughter is in a room with, uh, with four teenage boys and a, and a creepy bald man but anyway, what I'm trying to say here is that was a very good use of the Greys to kind of fill us in on backstory, right? It uh, it felt it felt expository, but it didn't feel like an exposition dump. It was good. I think it was a very good way to do this. Uh, we get to meet or revisit with our Brotherhood of Evil Mutants here, and it's it's mostly more the same, right? Toad is the ultimate lackey. Mastermind is kind of just there doing illusions. Um, And the Maximoffs are uh, morally conflicted, right? They don't want to be on the bad side At least Wanda doesn't want to be on the bad side But she knows that she owes Magneto her life here And, uh, and is intending to pay him back That really makes me wonder why they didn't just have them eventually join the X-Men It's, uh, they, I mean, they're not mutants anymore, of course But, uh, for, you know, 50 or so years, they were, right? So it's strange that, uh You know, they never actually joined the main X-Men team. Uh, Quicksilver, of course, spent some time as part of X-Factor, but uh, they've never been actual, you know, flagship X-Men members. It's very bizarre. Speaking of bizarre, uh, Magneto's mental powers. That is uh, kind of strange. He puts on that tiara to... I mean, it, it would have been easier just to say it just amplified his powers of magnetism, but they made sure to put that it was his mental control... Over you know metal, which is a bit bizarre, and uh, I will admit that I did read a little bit ahead, and uh, this is only the start of Magneto's weird mental powers. So we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be talking much more about that uh, during the next episode. It's uh, it's quite strange. It's quite strange the things that Magneto does here, and uh, we might be able to no prize it. We'll uh, we'll just have to see uh, next time here, but. I do wonder if Magneto's mental abilities caused the Scarlet Witch to forget a few things, because it's almost like you can't stress it enough. Um, Right here, Wanda is, like, worried that they're going to kill an X-Man, right? Whereas last issue, um, Magneto was not only going to kill all of the X-Men with a small bomb, but he was also going to use a large nuclear bomb to destroy an entire country, and she didn't want that to happen, of course, but, uh, like... She still went along with it, and here she's like, wait, 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 we can't kill a person. I don't know, maybe uh, maybe she was mind-wiped, who knows. I mean, mind-wipes do happen a lot in the Silver Age, as uh, we will come to find out uh, very, very shortly. But I think that's all I got to say here. Um, the art is the art. It's Kirby, you like him, or you don't. It's uh, the same as it does. Uh, same as it always is. Overall, still a very, very dense read, but uh, far more breezy than Issue 4 was, and uh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> but I think that's all I got to say about it. If uh, you would like to write in and talk about, uh, well, anything you want to talk about, I am always around. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at Nineties X Men. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the brand new or Sort of kind of new. Um, X lapsed voicemail at 623 396 jerk. You could find blog posts and show notes over at Chris's on You could check us out on Facebook. The little group is 90s X Men, and a uh, seems to be growing by the week. So thank you to everyone taking part there, and uh, thank you for sharing in the conversation. We're having a really, really good time there. Uh, finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate that for behind it, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, and uh, maybe tell a friend or two who, uh, who might be into comics, might be into the X-Men, or might just want to hear uh, a couple of New Yorkers shoot the breeze about uh, comics and life. Uh, it would really, really, really mean a lot to me. Speaking of which, it means so much to me that you'd share a little bit of your day with me today to listen to my nonsense and uh, discussing X-Men number five. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.